Welcome to the Jesus Image Podcast. Can you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 8? We're going to continue in the incarnation of the Lord Jesus. I want to just quickly say something, uh, and let's just grab our seats if we could. I've never started a sermon like this, but I felt it very strongly in my seat as we were uh, worshiping the Lord. I felt deep in my spirit that there is a, uh, there's someone here in the room who is really bent on examining what's taking place in here. I could feel that during worship for through the first like 30 minutes. There was like a resistance. Not in everyone. I felt like it was actually a religious spirit that had come to be sure that whatever happens in here meets your list of criteria. And what I would say, friends, is that the scriptures and history has proven that if you keep that posture, uh, history will forget you. And history belongs to those who burn for Jesus. And the ones who are left in the shadows are those who are possessed with a critical religious spirit. So what I would lovingly encourage you today is to, rather than analyze, to dip your foot in the Jordan and see if the waters part in your life. I just felt to share that, okay? And that is the love of God flowing. I can feel it's the Lord's love reaching out to you. And that's not for anyone online. That's for somebody here in this room. The Bible says God promotes the humble. He resists the proud. You don't want God resisting you. You won't win. But God takes the broken who throw themselves down at the foot of the cross and he elevates them in his kingdom. And, and, and I would also say this to you, that if just because you don't understand it, it doesn't mean it's not the Lord. In fact, I'm not sure you want a God that you fully understand. That would put him on your level. We'll spend eternity attempting to understand the ways of the Lord. Certainly none of us have arrived yet. Amen? Did you receive that this morning? Okay. That's a, certainly a great intro. Welcome to Jesus. John eight fifty eight. And I'm going to pull my old move and we'll back up to verse 48. <laughs> Then the Jews answered and said to him, do we not rightly say, my word, that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Can you imagine saying that to the Lord? How many of you, how many of you when you read that are shocked by people's capability? It's interesting that I opened the way I did this morning. 
<laughs> we are a broken, feeble people outside the work of the Holy Spirit. Humanity has the potential to do some really horrific and stupid things. One of which is to call God a demon-possessed man. Verse 49, Jesus answered, I do not have a demon. My Lord, that he would even need to say that. But I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. And I do not seek my own glory. Isn't that beautiful? There is one who seeks and judges. Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. That doesn't mean that you won't close your eyes and that your body won't go into the ground. She must understand that the biblical Christian viewpoint on death is different than the world. We see the closing of the eyes, the releasing of our last breath as sleep. I said we see it as sleep. This has to return to the church because if you're afraid of death, you will live in a self-protection mode your whole life. You will, if you're afraid of death, you'll be afraid of persecution. If you're afraid of death, you'll be afraid of being gossiped about or being, you'll be afraid of paying a price for the gospel. When you lose the fear of death, holy thoughts go through your mind. Holy scriptures go through your mind like don't fear someone who can take the body. Fear him who can destroy the body and the soul in hell forever. Losing the fear of death is a beautiful, beautiful work of the Holy Spirit in us. And it's, it is meant to belong to every believer. It's something we never talk about today. We don't talk about that moment that we will all face should the Lord tarry. Isn't that wild? You know, uh, Jesse and I right now are uh, we're getting our masters together. I think she beat me in three of the four or five out of the six classes. But she cheated. No. <laughs> she did beat me because she, she'll just outwork me. She's, when she's writing her papers, it's like you have to leave like the whole wing of the house. I just walk outside and go hit golf balls. But right now we're studying, or the class we're taking is early Christian spirituality. Basically the move of the Holy Spirit and the ethos of the church from uh, the resurrection onward. And it's been really a beautiful time. And on our last Zoom call, which was just a few nights ago with our professor, she was talking to us, and I found this to be incredible, about what were the tenets that the early church were known for? What were their behavioral pillars? What did they do all the time? One of which was this, to care for the sick and bury the dead. They were known for that. Now we have a culture who is absolutely petrified of leaving this body. And we have a church that is petrified of leaving this body. It's amazing, as Pastor Benny would say, as we age out, you know, I've seen people who are like 97, they'll get a phone call, pray for my dad. 
He's dying. I go, how old is he? 97. I go, how long do you want him to be here? I've been asked to pray for people in their hundreds. And I'm like, bro, like you're doing good. Lay hands on us. But it's amazing. Pastor Benny says we spend our whole life trying to go to heaven. And when the time comes, we freak out. And some of that's understandable. It is the ultimate act of faith to breathe your last in faith. Which is one of the reasons why those who've died in Christ in 1 Thessalonians 4 precede those who are on the earth as we are caught up with the Lord. He honors their faith. It's a wonderful faith walk to breathe your last clinging to Jesus. Say, thank you for your mercy, Lord. Now, there are many, you would think that people who live in deception and, and once started off in the faith, you would think that when the hour comes and they know it's coming, that they would recant and cling to Jesus. But I've seen people, some recently, who knew they were dying and held on to their deception. And that is the nature of sin. The nature of sin is that it does not weaken as it progresses. See, we would think that uh, if I walk in deception for 20 years, certainly at the moment or the hour of my passing, I would throw away all the deception and cling to the cross. The the only issue with that is, is that you don't know when you're deceived. That's the whole point. You actually think you're right. So you have nothing to repent over. Is this, this, am I tracking? Are you tracking? Okay, so what actually happens is the heart hardens even more. And even if the tone sounds gentle and loving, if it's not Christ crucified, it is an eternity without God. There is a hell. I said there is a hell. There is. You cannot take it out of the Bible. God's, God's holiness is necessary if he is to be the Lord. Is that making sense? So you actually see this in the book of Revelation. Here people are covered in boils and sores and rather than repent, they curse God. Now, How many of you, if you felt like the Lord was judging the world and you had sores and boils all over your body, you were being scorched by the sun, how many of you think it'd be a good idea to say, Lord, have mercy? But the human heart doesn't do that. The human heart hardens and curses the Lord. What's the point? Get with him now. Live softly now. Be tender now. Be pliable now. Understand this. Death is not the inheritance of the, of the saints. How many of you believe God holds your breath in his hand? Okay, at what point do you believe you will actually discover that when your breath is leaving? We all say, you are my life. But right now, you are living and breathing without trying. The day will come where you will fully understand, oh my gosh, I can't keep my breath in this body as long as I want to. Huh? 
So death, death spiritually is much different than death physically. Spiritual death births physical death. But Jesus here is saying that he who keeps my word shall never see death. I'm not talking about dying in the body. I'm talking about separation from God. Isn't that wonderful? I love that that's the Lord's reply to being accused of having a devil. He reminds them, your day's coming. And by the way, it's a good, good idea to keep my word. Verse 52. Then the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. <laughs> I tell you, they really got gentle there, didn't they? The Bible says, do not rebuke a fool. Not everyone who gets corrected and rebuked actually repents. This is proof. And this is actually what that religious devil does. Thinks it's always right. That's what I was addressing earlier. Thinks it's always right. If God himself rebukes you, you're still right. Abraham is dead and the prophets, and you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who is dead? And the prophets are dead? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, verse 54, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. Wow. I don't even need to comment on that. It is my Father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. Don't you love Jesus? <laughs> I love him. I love the real Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible. And you know there is a Jesus who's being presented that isn't the real Jesus. There's a whole movement that's meant to tear down the validity and the authority of Scripture. When Jesus himself taught the Scriptures, you read the Gospel of John, the son of perdition had to betrayed Jesus. Why? To fulfill the scriptures. Why were the disciples deceived? Because the Lord hadn't opened their eyes after the resurrection to understand the gospel of John says that the scriptures spoke of his resurrection. We don't receive a Jesus who is not the Jesus of the Bible. There isn't one. I said, there isn't one. I shall be a liar like you, but I do know him and keep his what? Those two will go together forever. The knowing of him and the keeping of his word. You say, oh, that's legalism. No, no, I'm not talking about hearing something and just doing it like a robot. The keeping of the word is actually referring to what Mary did when Gabriel brought the word to her. She treasured the word. She protected the speaking of the word to her. She, in a sense, made it that pearl of great price and protected it from other voices. This is what it looks like to keep the word in our hearts. Verse 56, your father, now here we go, now it gets good. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced to see my day 
and he saw it and was glad. Oh no, now we have a problem. Then the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I love that. Oh, as though the next phrase needed any most assuredly, but he's just nailing the point into the depths of the heart. Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I am. In all capitals. What was their response? Then they took up stones <laughs> to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out to the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. For those who say Jesus never uh, declared that he was the Lord, well, he literally takes the holy name of the Lord and applies it to himself. I am. The Greek words are eroime. That's what the Septuagint would write, would say. He is saying, I am the Lord of the burning bush. I am the Lord who delivered Israel from Egypt. I am the Lord God. He goes on to say, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. When did Abraham see the day of the Lord? When he was offering Isaac. Isn't that beautiful? And that's why the champions in the hall of faith pre-incarnation were in Abraham's bosom in paradise because they saw the day of Jesus coming. It doesn't matter if it was pre-cross. It still required the revelation of the coming Messiah. Do you get it now? And because they received by faith the promise that was bigger than Isaac. Remember, the promise was in your seed, all nations shall be blessed. Not seeds. In your seed, singular, with a capital S. Jesus is part of your bloodline, Isaac. And through the Messiah, who will be a Jewish Messiah from your line, which is why there's such a wave of anti-Semitism now. It's against the Lord Jesus. It doesn't mean we don't love everyone and we shouldn't pray the gospel. I'm not, that, 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 don't hear what I'm not saying. Hear what I am saying right now. The reason there is such a wave is because the Messiah is coming to rule and reign from Jerusalem. That is simply God's plan. From Abraham's line, through Isaac. And so here the Lord says, in your seed... Every nation shall be blessed. How many of you know Jesus is the king of the Gentiles as well? I said, how many of you know that? So, here's the point. He is claiming to be the Lord, and they knew he was claiming to be the Lord by the way they responded. They stoned you because of blasphemy. So their reaction to stone the Lord was their way of recognizing, oh my word, he is claiming to be Jehovah. And he is. I said he is. So is the Father. So is the Holy Spirit. He is the Lord. Say Jesus is the Lord. How did Isaac's 
offer or Abraham's offering of Isaac declare the coming of the Lord? Well, it's very clear. I've taught on this on Sunday mornings before. He goes up a mountain, right? Carrying a piece of wood. He is offered on an altar. He is offered by his father. That's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave or offered. Right? Notice that, that a ram is caught in the thicket with Isaac, not a lamb. So it's symbolic enough, but still gives room for the coming lamb. It still sets Jesus apart. If we could please just take our seats and, and just, if you could, just stay seated. This is speaking of the better offering. A ram, not a lamb, but symbolic enough to tell the story because a ram speaks of sin. It was the ram that was used for the sin offering. You say, what's this have to do with incarnation? Everything, because it tells us from the get-go that the one who is wearing skin is the I am. And he claimed to be. Now, for years, all two and a half on Sunday mornings, if you include Sunday nights, five, for years I've been telling you that Jesus is God. And I will say that until the day I die. He is the Lord. I said he is the Lord. However, Jesus not only defines perfectly what it looks like to be the Lord, he also defines perfectly what it looks like to be fully human. If you want to look at the perfect example of what it looks like to be fully alive, look at Jesus. You might say, oh, I, that, that makes perfect sense to me. Him walking on water? Yeah, yeah, I'd love to do that. I'd be fully alive. I'd love to just pay my bills with a coin from a fish's mouth. It's fully alive. Let's go fishing. Right? You get your, your, your check out of a fish's mouth. Well, praise God. Fish cash apps you. I guess that'd be more <laughs> applicable to today. All of that looks beautiful. Healing the sick, that's beautiful. But if you, you start seeing miracles, I just want to tell you, you will get, <laughs> you'll get torn up pretty good. It's awesome when God does it, but there's certainly some opinions around that, which troubles the heart. I've often wondered how people with a smile on their face and a proud look in their eye tell the world that God has done healing. If that were true, should we not communicate it with tears rather than a smile? Then it says something about our own heart that we're happy to tell the dying that there is no remedy in Christ for them. It actually reveals a heart posture. So all of that, you know, the healings, the miracles, the, you know... I don't know, some people really love casting out devils. That's always puzzled me. However, some people are really drawn to them uh, for a separate teaching. Uh, I guess that's what it could look like to be fully alive. Sure, sure, Jesus has perfectly defined what it looks like to be fully human. However, he defines it best by the way he dies. He defines it best 
by the way he dies. So when Jesus says, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced, what did Abraham see? The passion. The passion. He looked into God's way of fixing this whole thing. And I don't know how it went down or what happened exactly, but Jesus is very clear that Abraham saw his day and rejoiced. How many of you remember the trial that that they held for Jesus that was an illegal trial in the middle of the night? Remember, they finally got to the place where they asked him, tell us, just tell us, enough of this, tell us, are you the promised one? Are you the one to come? What did Jesus say? You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power. He's speaking of Daniel, chapter 7 there, when the books are open. Now here's the best part, and I love this about the Lord. Bob Gladstone talks about this beautifully. He actually talked about it years ago at the school. Who is the book opener? Say Jesus. He's still the only one who breaks the seal and opens the scrolls, right? So here they think, they think that he's on trial, and he is, but he's not the only one on trial. They're on trial. They're on trial. There is power, listen carefully, on being on the right side of God's word. So much power to be in God's perfect will for your life that when you are accused and it looks like that you are on trial before criticism, actually the person spewing it is on trial before God. And in your silence, in your silence, God is still doing the work. And that's the tragedy. Listen, that's the tragedy of that religiosity that we think we're right, never realizing that we're the one on trial and we're losing miserably. And that's why Jesus pointed them back to Daniel 7. Oh, I know, I'm standing here. You've beaten my face in. I'm here bound with ropes. The day will come where you'll see me sitting at the right hand of power. Don't forget, you are judging me based on your law that you can't see properly because you can't see me. Remember, without Jesus, you have no way of interpreting the, the scriptures. You know, if you, if you needed a pair of glasses to understand this holy book, the pair of glasses, every lens would be in the shape of a cross. Maybe I should make some. But for you, for them to crack open, you have to look through his passion. If not, you will just take them and judge the Messiah like they did. Isn't that wild? So Jesus defines what it looks like to be fully alive. And and according to the Bible, we are most alive, listen, we are most alive when we give ourselves away the most. That one didn't land. Some of y'all got it. We are most full, most filled with joy, most filled with peace when we are most sacrificial. So in this day and age, in today's day and age, everything is about me. Everything is about convenience and I'm, I'm, I'm troubled. We are losing a generation because 
we have lost holy tradition. I see people, I've seen people in other churches, don't, don't do it here. <laughs> My Greek Orthodox side will come out. I see people take communion elements and throw them to the person next to them. What are we doing? My father-in-law taught us, if you, if you sat on his platform in the Crusades and he looked behind you and there was a Bible on the ground, you got rebuked in front of the whole stadium. It's the word of God. We've called a tradition religion. When Paul says he handed down the faith, the word he uses there is traditioned. He said, I traditioned the faith to you. I handed it down. This is where we get the beauty of like prophetic act that's been handed down from one generation to the next in the church. I'll never forget our wedding when they put the crowns on us. That goes back to the early church. You could feel the glory of God. That's the beauty of going on a journey together as a people through the Bible. Receiving communion together is that we're all sensing the same heartbeat of the Lord. We're all looking into the same aspect of the Lord. We're all hearing the same word. We're receiving the same body, the same blood. One baptism, as the creed says, and we all go on this journey together. Now we have families who don't even look each other in the eye at the table anymore. I'm not, I'm not joking. These are holy traditions. I, I remember my grandmother saying, if, if we misbehaved at the table, she would say, Jesus is at this table. And that's true. So what we are experiencing now is a lack of depth, a lack of spiritual culture, a lack of spiritual romance among families and congregations. There are no roots left. Everything's so quick. And things are dying that must not die. And they are dying in the name of convenience. Can I just read some things to you real quick? Now, I just want to say, as I read these, that I did not come up with these. Did I say that? Okay, let me say it again. I did not come up with these, all right? I received these in my class at Regent University, which I consider to be a reputable institution. These statistics were given to us by Regent, and the sources for them are for, from Focus on the Family. Have you, have you heard of that? The Barna Research Group, Campus Crusade for Christ, these are the resources, and the Schaefer Institute. So these are very reputable organizations. They did not come from the Kulianos household. I am just the delivery boy. All right, now, according to these statistics, 40% of every pastor has an affair after he's ordained into the ministry. 40%. 50% of wives feel that their husband entering the ministry has destroyed their families. 50% of all pastoral marriages end in divorce. Half. I, I knew that's the case in the church. It used to be 35 when I was growing up. Now it's 50. But it, that applies to pastoral marriages as well. 57% of every pastor interviewed in this survey said they would leave the ministry if they could. 
if they could afford it. Now, now, I don't know how recent these stats are, but we took this class last semester in our spiritual formation class. 57% said I would quit if I could afford it. 70% said I do not have a close friend. Not one. I do not have a confidant and I do not have a mentor. In other words, I don't have a pastor. I'm not pastor. 70% of all pastors said that. 71% battle depression continually. This is what the Bible teaches us to pray for our pastors. Not declare war on our pastors. We should pray for our pastors. 77% felt that they haven't had a good marriage since entering the ministry. 80% of all pastors interviewed spend less than 15 minutes per day with Jesus. Less than 15 minutes. The Lord knows my heart, but I'm going to be like Paul for a second here and just deal with some folly. And I have spent at least two to three hours with Jesus on a daily basis since 2002. For 21 years, on the low end, in light of everything I have to steward and carry, which is a large staff, a local church, a movement that the Lord is using in the nations, my own travel schedule, the writing of books, leading a ministry school, married to a wonderful woman who tells me where to go and stand, <laughs> three children who are in the thick of needing an insane amount of attention, gladly, Theo's playing golf, Benny's doing everything, lifting, this, that. Now he's our new theologian. <laughs> Sophia's leading worship, she's dancing. I mean, my word, we're busy like all of you. We're very busy. On top of that, we have a tour coming up from January to May in California, and we'll be back here for church every week. Imagine that. So if you can't get here on time because you drove from like Ocoee, it's really hard to have a lot of compassion when our team flies from L.A., up all night to be here to minister to the Lord, right? So we got a lot going on. All of us do. In the midst of that type of fullness of schedule, I still have the time to spend two to three hours a day with the Lord and be filled to come offer the bread of life to you. That's why you receive fresh bread. It's shocking to me that pastors believe that they can do this thing without Jesus. And I think we just hit the epicenter of the issue. All these other statistics prior to the one I just read. Less than 15 minutes a day with the Lord? When Jesus told his disciples, you can't wait an hour? Like, y'all are rookies. What's wrong with y'all? I'm over here sweating blood. You can't stay awake. Convenience has destroyed spiritual death. You say, is it easy on you? No, it's not. It's not easy on me. Not easy at all. I got up today early. Sought the Lord. Last night before bed, the family was out in the living room. I snuck away. I took another hour with Jesus when I could find it. Is that always easy? No. Many planes have been turned into tabernacles. Many. Many planes. I've seen devils manifest. Oh, I feel the Lord. 
Can I have five extra minutes today? I've seen devils manifest from 50 yards away from me. I'm not joking. Jesse will tell you. In Asia, I saw a guy. He was trying to sell something to Jess, which isn't real hard. They were like these knockoff things. And she's like, oh, wow. He goes, we're in Hong Kong. And I'm like, man, don't talk to that dude. This guy comes up, would you like to come up to my office? She goes, sure. I'm like, what are you doing? Next thing I know, we're in this warehouse. It looked like a bad, like, uh, Jackie Chan movie, all these dudes up there. He's like, you want to buy this? I'll never forget, like, watches here, wallets taped to, like, Jesse's like, those are beautiful. The next thing I know, we're upstairs in Asia, solo. I'm like, oh, Lord. So she goes, she's talking to the guy, and I just sit in the chair. I do the husband thing. I sit in the chair in this clothing shop. He's about from me to the middle here. I'm in my chair. And the Lord says, he has a devil. You don't have to believe this, but it's true. Sure as I'm standing here. I said, okay, Lord. He said, rebuke it. I was like, he's the sales guy. And he's trying to sell Jesse something. I said, here? He goes, rebuke that demon. I said, all right. So I sat there in my chair. And very, I just whispered it. He didn't have a clue. I was even looking at him. I said, I rebuke you in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Next thing you know, he starts sweating. He stops trying to sell or something. He's beet red. He starts spinning in a circle. I will never forget it. And I'm watching going, whoa. It's like a remote control car. I was like, you know. <laughs> He sprints straight to me. He says, I don't know what's going on with me. And I thought, oh, Lord, help me. I don't know what to do. Because I was still in my chair. And he had a knockoff belt that had a cross on the belt buckle. I said, do you see that cross on your belt? He said, yeah. I said, do you know what that means? He said, no. You don't have to argue with devils. Just deal, bring the cross and press the cross into their face. And I preached the gospel to him right there. He was blown away. God rocked him. Well, you don't just step into that. You, you have to, you reject convenience for the face of Jesus. That is incarnate lifestyle. Because the incarnation is incredibly inconvenient for the Lord. It was. How many of you think Jesus leaving heaven's throne room, being born in a grotto was a bit inconvenient. Why is it difficult for you to get up at six in the morning? I'm, look, okay, maybe you work till six, then pray at night. But this convenience thing is destroying the church. It's inconvenient to pray over your children every night. It's wonderful, but it's inconvenient. Every night, we go through the Lord's Prayer. Every night, I go through the Psalms with the children. Every night, every morning, I do the same thing. It doesn't mean they're perfect, but they have millions of seeds that have been promised to bear fruit in their life, whether they like it or not. We need to lose our convenience. There have been many nights where I just want to go to bed. And the children will walk in the room and go, Baba, we didn't do our scriptures. Now they remind me. 
I want us, listen, uh, let me say it differently. God is raising up leaders who don't just love their church. They love Jesus and his church. His church is starting to matter to certain pastors now. The big C church. He, the, the, God is raising up pastors that care about the faith transitioning to the next generation. And we've been just giving them happy meals. It's not the real deal. It's not the real deal. It is, we have never been promised convenience. We have never been promised that everyone will like us. It's never been the message. Jesus said, if they hated me, they will hate you. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. There's nothing convenient about it, but it is fully alive. The most dead people are the most selfish. I'm not joking. The most depressed, anxious people are the ones who are most into themselves. They call their lifestyle boundaries, and you should have boundaries. But if you have so many boundaries that nobody can get in, you don't have boundaries, you have bondage. You have a stronghold on your hands. And the people who build the thickest walls, the most boundaries in an unhealthy way, are the ones who are self-preserving. The ones who realize from the start an incarnate life looks like dying have no problem trusting again because they know they signed up for pain in the first place. But somehow in that pain, they find inexplainable joy. But today's day and age, uh, I'm out of here. And you just go a half mile. Go to that church. Blow that one up. Go to this church. Blow that one up. Same issues. Go from one to the next to the next. You know what? That's called convenience. It's not called Christian. Some of the most glorious times I've had when I've gotten up early in the morning. Didn't know what to say to the Lord. Had nothing to say. Just to be honest, nothing to say. Help, help me, Joel, very softly, a pad. I had nothing to say, but my heart would say something like this. I'm wiped out and have nothing to say, but here I am. I know you love me enough to appreciate that I'm just here. Maybe what you want more then anything I have to say is just me. I mean, could you imagine if you put a, a lamb on an altar as a living sacrifice and it started talking to you? You don't need to talk when you're burning. If you want to be a living sacrifice, just throw your life on the altar. You, you say, well, I doze off. Then wake up and do it again. Do you think God is upset that you're sleeping in his presence? I mean, he'd rather you be up. But if you're going to fall asleep, fall asleep with him. What, what would happen in your spiritual life if you drowned out the noise an hour before bed? I've heard people say, I don't dream as much anymore. I, I don't hear as much in prayer anymore. Of course you don't. You're cluttering your mind with the world. This is not, this is old time ancient Christianity. And I'm just saying that's the only one I want. And that's the only one this church will ever be. 
When we look at Jesus, that baby born in a manger, we look at a God who deeply inconvenienced himself. And him as our forerunner, as the patterned son, as the firstborn from the dead, has invited us into the same thing. But I'm telling you, listen, listen. I remember one morning. I won't give all the details. But one morning I was at Pastor Benny's. I'd flown out when he was still living in California. And, you know, you gain those three hours. So you wake up at like three, no problem. And I thought, you know, I'm going to take advantage of this. And I went down into their living room and put the fireplace on. I don't know, praying near a fire is easier for some reason. And it was obviously dark out. I turned that fireplace on sat there in this little rocking chair they had, like a leather rocking chair. Took my Bible out, started reading Isaiah 53. Didn't really know what to pray, so I would just repeat, he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes were healed. I kept reciting that, because that is a form of meditation, which is not a curse word, it's a holy, holy journey with the Lord. Meditation needs to be redeemed by the church, taken away from new age in the world. All this darkness, it was given to the church. David wrote, meditate, I meditate on your law. Uh, Joshua wrote, meditate upon the law because you're about to go to a place you've never been before, referring to the crossing of the Jordan. And by the way, meditation is not convenient. You don't necessarily feel angels brushing your face and rubbing your feet. Prayer is at its entry point is not very convenient. Those first few minutes or hours or whatever. But at one point, I'll never forget what happened. My heart was calm. A deep stillness hit my soul. I could feel the presence of the Spirit welling up within me and I had one of the most glorious encounters of my life. Saw things that, that I just are too holy to talk about here. It changed my life and set me on a course that you're experiencing today. And this was 2010. What we gain through the offering of ourselves greatly outweighs the price we paid to gain it. Would you lift your hands to heaven? Father, we want to be like Jesus. We want to walk like Jesus. We cannot do that without the grace of the Holy Spirit. So now, Holy Father, pour out the grace of the Spirit upon this church, upon those watching. May the weighty presence of the Spirit come upon us And may we know that we met with God this morning. And as we prepare to receive communion, we repent, Lord. We we ask you to forgive our sin. Now, right there where you are in your seats, the Bible teaches us to confess our sin, to judge ourselves prior to the reception of communion. So would you do that right now? Would you just begin to ask the Lord, Lord, is there anything that I need to to make right? Anything I need to repent of? Anyone I need to forgive? Friends, listen. I realize 
life is painful. I realize people can hurt you. You must forgive them. Forgive them. In fact, right now, if people are coming to your mind that have hurt you, I don't only want you to forgive them. I want you to right now, gently begin praying for them. Do it now. Just begin praying for them. Ask the Lord to bless them. Bless those who persecute you, the Bible says. Father, do a holy work this morning, a sacred work, a sanctifying work among your people. May you be deeply blessed and glorified because of it. In Jesus' mighty name, make us like Jesus. Would you say this out loud? Say, Lord, make me like Jesus by your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can like and subscribe to help us continue to reach people around the world with the gospel. Give today at jesusimage.tv forward slash give. You can also join us in person or online every Sunday at Jesus Image Church. For more information on Jesus Image, events, Jesus School, and resources, visit jesusimage.tv.